today, just about a half hour before the show started, uh, maybe even just like 20 minutes, uh, breaking news came that kind of came, you know, because today's show is really going to be one topic and then we're going to mostly take live questions today. But then this one thing came up and uh, oh my God, it's a doozy. Now, of course, last year we had the Lion King come out and I'm not going to lie to you. I loved Lion King. Like I, I, I know not everybody liked it. I know there was a lot of critics that didn't enjoy Lion King. Screw them. I don't care. I loved Lion King. Was it as good as the original? No, no, it didn't. It didn't have that same uh, magic, the je ne sais quoi, if you will, of the original. No, it didn't. I'm not saying that it did, but I loved it in its own right with a couple of glaring weaknesses that we'll get into in a minute. There were a couple of glaring weaknesses to it. I had, I'm not gonna lie to you, I had a wonderful time watching this movie, dude. Listen, I remember being there, the first screening of it, and I had tears welling up in my eyes as that, like that opening music as the sun is rising and the I, I was getting choked up. I was taken back to like the early 90s when I watched it when I was younger and just all the emotions I felt. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a great iteration of the original tale. I know not everybody agreed. Screw y'all. I don't care. I really liked it. And I stand on that. Uh, again, with some glaring weaknesses. The thing is, the movie went on to make $1.6 billion. $1.6 billion, which makes it one of the most successful films of all time. So it did really well. So it really shouldn't surprise a lot of us that it then got announced today that we are, in fact, getting a sequel to The Lion King. And not just a sequel. We're getting a sequel with an Academy Award winner uh, who has had a movie win Best Picture at the Academy Awards, had multiple multiple films of his nominated for Academy Awards. Barry Jenkins is coming in to direct it uh, for John Favreau, who is not going to be directing it this time. And I, I really did like John Favreau's uh, the job Favreau did on the first one. I did. I, I, I like the, the job he did. I would have been thrilled to see him come back to do another one. But if you can't get John Favreau back, who's really busy, maybe getting ready to take over Kathleen Kennedy's job. Uh, John Favreau is very busy, obviously, with Mandalorian. He's got to get season three up and going. He's not coming back. I tell you, getting an Academy caliber filmmaker like Barry Jenkins, to me, that that's a no brainer. That's a win. That's a win to me. This, this is great. So you've got the technology is there. It's only going to be even better this time around. You've got an incredible filmmaker there and a wide open scope. Now, one of the first questions that I'm sure a lot of people are going to ask is, okay, so will the next Lion King then be, you know, what was it? Lion King one and a half or will it be Lion King's, what was it? Simba's Pride? I can't remember what the name of the animated sequel stuff was. I, I just can't remember. Apparently not. This is going to be an original. This is going to be completely original. Now, this is what they said in the deadline report. And I actually find this kind of, I think the approach they're taking with this is actually kind of interesting. Uh, take a look at this, see what they said in their, in the written report. I'll just make the text a little bit bigger here. It says they're exploring, they're keeping, I should say, the log line under wraps. But I'm told, this is the reporter from deadline. But I'm told that the story will further explore the mythology of the characters, including Mufasa's origin story. But it's not a prequel. Listen to this. Moving the story forward 
while looking back, conjures memories, this was the first thing I thought of too, of The Godfather Part 2, because that's exactly what The Godfather 2 was, right? It was moving The Godfather story forward, but also incorporating a lot of flashbacks to the past, incorporating prequel elements to show how they tie in to how the story's moving forward. So Conjuring Memories of Godfather Part 2 set on the African plains with a continuation of the traditional music that was a key part of the 1994 animated classic, the 2019 film, and the blockbuster Broadway stage. All right. I'm going to be honest with you. This is where this all gets a little bit iffy for somebody like me. This is where this gets a little bit iffy for somebody like me. But John, you just finished talking about how much you really enjoyed Lion King, even though a bunch of other people did. No, that's true. I, I really, really enjoyed Lion King very, very much. But remember how at the beginning I was saying that despite the fact that I really, really loved the, you know, this new iteration of Lion King, there were a couple of glaring weaknesses. This is where it comes into what they just said. And here's where it worries me. And we're getting a little bit cautious. You see, I felt there were two glaring weaknesses in the original. One was, as much as I love Beyonce as much as anybody else, let's face it, her vocal performance in Lion King as Nala was not her best work. All right. I, I mean, I think she's great, but that was clearly not her best work. I thought all the lines she delivered were flat and lifeless, juxtaposed against Donald Glover. Like, I thought Gambino did a pretty good job. You know who did a great job? The kid actors. The kids who did the, the kid versions of Simba and Nala. I thought they were fantastic. They really captured that spirit. But I thought Donald Glover was quite solid. Was not Beyonce's best work. All right. So I thought that was one kind of glaring weakness. The other glaring weakness was the original music that they did. Because, yeah, they did, you know, a bunch of the popular tunes, Hakuna Matata, whatever, Circle of Life. But then at that one part in the movie, as Simba and Nala decide to return to Pride Rock, they do an original song, right? Awful. Awful original song. Now, I, I questioned myself a little bit because I thought, okay, am I only thinking it's a bad song and that it doesn't fit because it's not from the original movie? And I rewatched it a couple times. I'm like, nope, it's just a fact that it's all subjective, of course. But to me, it was just a fact that, no, it's just that song does did not fit this movie. And it's just a bad song. Again, it's all subjective. Maybe you love the song and that's great. And I appreciate it if you did. But for me, it just didn't work. So the reason that this news makes me a little bit nervous is specifically because of the fact that this is now going to be all new stuff. The music they now do in this is going to be all originals. And while we only had a very small sample size of what, you know, this production company can come up with as far as an original song for the Lion King setting goes, it was just the one song. But I really didn't think it was very good. And now we got to move into a Lion King 2 and it's going to be filled with new stuff. Now, maybe it'll be magnificent. Maybe it'll be the best stuff ever. Maybe the music in Lion King 2 will be better than the music in Lion King 1. I mean, it's highly unlikely and it doesn't need to be as good as the music in Lion King 1, but maybe it'll be even better. Who knows? But I'd be lying to you if I didn't tell you that that'll be the one thing that I'm kind of nervous about going in. But speaking of things that that made me nervous, things I'll look forward to. I thought John Favreau 
did a really solid job bringing this. I mean, it was a thankless job. It was a, it was a, uh, it was almost a no-win situation. I thought he did a great job. I thought, other than Beyonce, I thought the voice cast was great. I'm not a big Billy Eichner fan, but <laughs> him as Timon, I thought was fantastic. I mean, I, I almost liked him as, as much as, oh, uh, the Birdcage uh, actor who, who played, who did the voice of Timon in the original. His name's eluding me right now. But I, I thought Billy Eichner was great. I thought, thought Seth Rogen. I mean, everybody thought Seth Rogen when they announced that he was going to be uh, Puma. Nathan Lane, thank you, uh, Omar94 in the chat. Nathan Lane. Nathan Lane, who was a terrific Timon. Um, I thought Seth Rogen was a great Pumba, but everybody knew he would be as soon as they announced it. Everybody's like, oh, yeah, that makes total sense. Again, I thought Donald Glover did a really good job. I thought that worked. And by the way, uh, I don't think somebody who gets enough credit is John Oliver. Uh, John Oliver is Zazu because, you know, I'm thinking, how do you replace Mr. Bean as Zazu? And they got John Oliver, and I thought John Oliver was terrific. I really did. And I, so overall, I thought the voice cast was very strong other than that one thing. But again, I think when you weigh out the positives and the negatives, the positives, the technology is incredible. I, I really personally very much appreciated the first film very much. I thought the voice talent was really great. You got a Billy Jenkins. Billy Jenkins. You got Barry Jenkins. Billy. I just could call him Billy. We got Barry Jenkins coming in. I mean, a, an Oscar caliber filmmaker like that. I mean, that's all the pros. Again, my one kind of bit of hesitation is going to be the music. And that's only because I didn't like the original stuff that they wrote for the first film. But it's going to be interesting to see where they go. Will they incorporate stuff from some of those, uh, one or two of those animated sequels that they did, those straight-to-home video sequels that they did? Maybe they'll incorporate. Will we actually see the son of Scar in this? I doubt it. It sounds like they're going in a completely different direction. If you're going to have a little bit of the Mufasa origin story, probably showing the feud between, the early feud between him and Scar, maybe even showing us when Scar originally challenged Mufasa, but whatever. If we're going to have a little bit of the Mufasa storyline in there, do you get James Earl Jones back? Or do you get another actor if you're saying this is like when Mufasa was significantly younger and therefore you can get away with getting in a different voice actor because maybe his voice would be different? So a, a lot of questions that get raised. If you do have Scar, do you go back and get Chiwetel Ejiofor? who I thought did a very admirable job filling in for uh, Jeremy Irons, or do you go back to Jeremy Irons and get Jeremy Irons come back to do the voice of Scar again? I don't think that makes a lot of sense, but there's a kind of a coolness factor to it and, and, uh, and a, a novelty to it if you do. So there's a bunch of questions there. Do we get to see Mufasa's daddy? Like, who was Mufasa's daddy? That becomes an interesting question we could boot around. That could be an interesting question we could boot around. But anyway, that's the news right now, guys. Lion King 2, it's official. It's in development. Right now, they don't have an official start date, which I'm not surprised considering we're still in the midst of a pandemic. They don't have an official production date or release date or anything like that, but they do have their screenwriter. They've already finished the first draft. They've got their director on board, who is of Oscar caliber. Uh, everything looks interesting. Question is for you guys. What do you think about this? Maybe you're one of the people who didn't like the new Lion King. And that's that's cool. It's all subjective. If you didn't, you didn't, and that's fine. Uh, I personally did. But if you didn't, maybe this news doesn't. But maybe you're one of those people that, you know what? I didn't like the first one, but I think there's potential for a second one to be really great. So I'm excited about it. How are you feeling about this? Jump down into the comments section below and let me know 
your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, we got one more thing I kind of want to talk about here today. And I kind of hijacked this one from the live questions that came in. And, and there was a live question. You'll see. We'll get to it in just a little bit. But it came in from one of our viewers, Dwayne uh, Jackson. And I thought it was such an interesting question. I wanted to bring it up right now, kind of in the first part of the show. Let me bring up what Dwayne Jackson wrote here. Dwayne Jackson wrote in, he said, hello, John and family with CW downsizing. It's DC shows like Supergirl and with others, Black Lightning and Legends of Tomorrow that are on the chopping block with HBO now becoming DC central. Do you think that the CW still has a place is a place or do you still think of CW as a place for DC content? I think that's a fascinating question. I really do. I think that is a terrific question because we are right now in a period of great transition and great flux for the television world of DC properties. In the midst of all this upheav upheaval, right at the center of it, you could argue was DC Universe, right? Uh, the DC Universe streaming app was going to be this great place for the DC originals. You were going to get Doom Patrol. You were going to get, I mean, you had... Uh, uh, Titans, Swamp Thing, that's where Stargirl was originally supposed to be. And then one by one, they all started to fall and they all moved away. And, and the writing was on the wall. DC Universe kind of became obsolete and they're shuttering it as far as original television programming goes. In the midst of all that, we've also got this new, the dawn of HBO Max. And you know, there's a lot of interesting things going to HBO Max, whether it's Snyder Cut whether it's Green Lantern, uh, the, the number of other projects they've said they're going to be on the go and on the move. Hell, they just announced Peacekeeper, a Suicide Squad spinoff being directed and written by James Gunn and starring John Cena. Peacemaker's going there. there there's been a lot of exciting announcements about going go over there. Also, in the midst of all this upheaval, it's a time of great upheaval for the CWDC stuff, right? Like just not too long ago, the founding show, the cornerstone, I would argue, of the DC universe on CW, Arrow, the show that started the Arrowverse, it came to its conclusion. Not a very strong conclusion, but it came to its conclusion and wrapped up. They lost that. They've just announced that Supergirl is heading into its final season, and the ratings on that have been dropping significantly. You've got Batgirl whose season one was not a tremendous success. It, it had some issues with critics and fans and clearly with ratings. They're switching things up. They've lost their main star after just one season. And now they're switching to a new star who's going to be playing uh, Batgirl and a completely new character is taking on the mantle of Batgirl. How odd is that going to improve ratings? I have my doubts. You have Legends of Tomorrow. With one of my favorite characters in all of the CWDC verse, White Canary. I loved her from the moment she appeared in Arrow. And so I was pretty excited when they transferred over. But, but Legends of Tomorrow, for me personally, while it certainly had its moments in the first couple of seasons, it was always a show that was borderline. Like, yeah, I could watch the next episode or I might not. You know what I mean? I could watch the next episode. I could skip the next episode. And finally, I gave up on it. And I know a lot of people did. And it has been on the chopping block every year. Now, they did renew for a sixth season. But it seems like for the last number of years, every year, it's a question mark. Will this show get renewed or not? Because it's always been right on that cusp. You can't see it lasting much longer, right? You got one of the new ones, Stargirl. Now, 
there are a bunch of people who are liking Stargirl. I was looking forward to it. If for no other reason that Luke Wilson was in there, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a sucker for Luke Wilson. I really like Luke Wilson. That being said, I watched the first three episodes. Not for me. I'm not going to say it's a bad show. I'm just saying it's not, it wasn't for me. I gave it a few episodes. Didn't really click with me, whatever. But it has found an audience. It has found an audience. To me right now, Stargirl seems, oddly enough, in, in like just having done its first season, it's kind of like, it looks like the most stable show they've got. But again, it's just a new show. And one that could easily transition over to HBO Max. So it's got its audience. Looks like it's probably the most stable one. Then you've got Flash, which has probably been my favorite of the CW DC shows for a while. I mean, Arrow was that for a while, and then Arrow fell off in Flash. And I still quite enjoy Flash, but Flash has lost no speed, pun intended. Flash has lost a lot of its momentum, I found. Like, even in the this last season, which was a pretty good season, I would I found myself for the first time not going, ooh, is it is it uh, the new Flash episode day yet? Like, w uh, during previous seasons of Flash, I'd be like, oh, hey, the new, new episode of Flash is out. Got to watch it, right? I found in this last season, it was like, oh, I, I'm, I'm behind by three episodes. Oh, okay. And then I'd watch it, and yeah, I liked it, but... I just felt like, I feel like Flash has lost a lot of momentum. The show's lost a lot of momentum. I think it's been a very good show overall. But again, it's the M word. It's momentum. It's lost a lot of it, especially after Arrow ended. I, I just, I found for me, and I can only speak for myself here. When Arrow ended, I found a chunk of my enthusiasm for the CWDC verse overall kind of took a hit. And that may not have been your experience. I, I can only speak for myself there. But anyway, good show. I like it, but I feel like it's lost momentum. <clears throat> then Black Lightning, which, like Flash, I thought was a dumb idea when they first announced it. Like, when they first announced Flash, I thought it was a dumb idea. I didn't think it would work as a TV show. Fully admit it. I didn't think this would work as a TV show. And then I totally got into it. I totally enjoyed it. Black Lightning was another one. They announced it. <clears throat> saw some, some teaser stuff. I thought, this looks lame. And then I watched it and I totally got into it and I totally got into it, but it's another one that its future has been pretty much a big question mark, like not knowing whether it's going to get renewed and that's just been something that's plagued it. So when you look at the big, big, big era of transition, right? You're looking at things like uh, DC universe hitting the crapper. HBO Max emerging with all their stuff. CW with nothing looks super stable at the CW stuff uh, other than maybe Stargirl, but, you know, Flash, Legends of Tomorrow, Batgirl, Supergirl's ending. Uh, again, there's Stargirl and you got Black Lightning, but everything looks like it's in flux. So when you get a question, and I think it's a very valid question that Dwayne asks, which is with the DC universe, with the DC universe now kind of finding a home over on HBO Max, with things like Doom Patrol already making the move over there, which is I, honestly probably the best thing DC's got going on television right now. With Harley Quinn now making the move over to HBO Max, which also you could make an argument might be the best thing that DC's got on television right now. With all these upcoming things HBO Max has. And here's the key. On HBO Max, you can do whatever you want. You want to make something light and fun? You can do that on HBO Max. You want to do something a little bit 
heavier with a little bit more adult material, you can do that on HBO Max. You want to go straight up hardcore blood and guts? You can do that on HBO Max. You want to be totally family friendly and kid friendly? You can do that on HBO Max. You don't have that kind of flexibility over at CW. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's not a world ending thing. That's not a horrible thing. But at CW, you don't necessarily have that flexibility. I mean, like you want to do an episode where you want to do a storyline where, where, you know, Barry on Flash gets addicted to, you know, blow and hookers. I don't know why I just came up with that. I have no idea. But you wanted to do, you know, Flash season nine, blowing hookers, where he's struggling with with uh, with heavy addiction and, and sex addiction and drug addiction, and you want to have a lot of it. You can't you can't do that on CW. I'm not saying that's what they should do with Flash. I'm not saying that would be good for Flash. I'm just saying that creatively, if you wanted to do something like that or something in that vein, you can't do that on CW. There are limitations. And by the way, CW, one of its strengths is also a weakness sometimes. One of the strengths of CW in general is that it has a very much a personality. All CW shows, when you watch a CW show, you can tell it's a CW show. It doesn't matter if it's Gossip Girl or Supernatural or, or Black Lightning or whatever. When you watch a CW show, by the way, I never watched Gossip Girl, so maybe Gossip Girl wasn't even on CW. I'm not sure. I thought it was. This. Anyway, when you watch a CW show, you know it's a CW show. You don't even have to look at the TV guide. You just know this is a CW show, right? It's got a very distinct personality. And that has worked to its benefit a lot. But it also has a little bit of a weakness in the fact that there's a little bit less creative flexibility. Not creative freedom, but a little bit less creative flexibility. Over on HBO Max, that's not a problem. Now... <clears throat> There's an argument to be made here, too, for this. Wouldn't it be great if DC brought all of its television properties under one roof? There's an argument to be made for that. Because you bring all the, the television properties under one roof, all of a sudden now, you've got some continuity. You've got a very easy place for all DC television fans to know. If I, hey, that... Is there anything on DC television that I want to watch? I know where to find it. It's on HBO Max. Clean, simple, you know, there's a purity to that. There's something really great about that. Also, it makes it a little bit easier if you want to interconnect them. But John, a DC fandom, they already said everything is a multiverse. Yeah, I get it. But it's when it's all under one roof, though, it gives you, it makes the task a little bit simpler of if you want to start to interconnect a couple of stories, not that they will, but if you wanted to, it becomes a little bit less taxing to do so. At the same time, you could make the argument that having DC shows spread across multiple networks is an advantage as well. Like, you know, maybe there's a danger if they're all under HBO Max, even though they have more creative flexibility, maybe there's a danger they become all a little bit too similar. And then having another network carrying the DC shows like CW guarantees that you'll get a lot of difference, a lot of parody, that you'll have different types of DC shows and there's less of a danger of all of them becoming a little bit too similar to each other. There's an argument to be made for that, I suppose. Personally... I mean, I have liked the history 
of, of DC stuff on CW. I've liked the history of it. Starting with Arrow, which is great. I've loved Black Lightning. For the most part, I've really enjoyed Flash. I thought Legends Tomorrow had its spots. I'm not a fan of Stargirl, but a lot of people are. So that's a win. Batgirl's been a little shaky. You know, I've got my opinion on Supergirl. But again, like Stargirl, Supergirl's got its fans, man. It's got its fans. So we've already got a tradition of DC shows over there. It'd be weird to lose that. But I got to tell you, as a viewer... I think I like the idea more of it all being under one roof. I kind of like the idea of it all being on one service. Put it all under HBO Max. Again, there's a simplicity to that that I enjoy. The, the notion of if you're thinking of any DC show, you know exactly where it lives and you just go there. Now, there's the other argument. Well, not everybody has HBO Max. Uh, maybe some people live in countries where they don't even have access to HBO Max. That's a pop problem, yes. But like every show that's on a streaming network that isn't in another country, they just make that show available on a different streaming network in that country. Great example of that was uh, CBS All Access, which is now called Paramount Plus, I suppose, with their Star Trek Discovery. A lot of countries didn't have CBS All Access at the time, but that's okay. They licensed the show out to other streaming networks like Netflix or whatever, so in other countries they could still watch it. I believe HBO Max could do that as well. I guess the question is for you guys. What do you see as the pros and the cons about the idea of CW is just no longer needed as far as DC content goes? You know, I, just that HBO Max feels like a more natural home for DC televised content. Or maybe you feel the opposite. Maybe you feel completely the opposite. Maybe you feel like if there is going to be DC television, it should all be on CW. I don't know. How do you guys feel about it? Jump into the comment section below and let me know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, let's now go over and spend the remainder of our time here today taking your live questions. If you want to get a live comment or question on the show, simply use the tip link that's in the top of the description of this video. You can just click on that anytime or just enter it manually, streamalbums.com slash movieblogtv slash tip. You'll be getting your comment or question on the show if it's reasonable and you'll be supporting the show at the same time. And don't forget, guys, you can use this link 24 hours a day. If you put it in before a show starts, your question will probably be one of the earlier questions that gets addressed. All right. Let's move on now and start taking those live questions. And we're going to start up here with Schnepp for the win. Who right? You know, it's funny. I was just talking about John Schnepp the other day. Actually, yesterday, uh, my wife and I were, my wife and I went out for dinner. And I can't remember what brought it up. I remember what brought it up. We were talking about the night that we went to the premiere of uh, John Schnepp's uh, The Death of Superman Lives What Happened documentary. I remember that. And we, we just started talking about that a little bit. Uh, fun, fun little fact. Um, so John Schnepp and Holly, who, who, di who did the film, Holly did the, the movie with John. Uh, they did a two-night premiere at the Egyptian Theater in Hollywood. So two nights back to back. And on the first night, they got the great Kevin Smith to be the moderator for the Q&A after the movie. And I had the honor, uh, John and Holly invited me to be the moderator for the second night of the premiere, uh, which was... Uh, thrilling for me to be, be a part of that. But anyway, yeah, the, the great John Schnepp, ladies and gentlemen. Anyway, have you watched 
The Messy Truth VR Experience. The first episode stars Winston Duke. Oh, I love M'Baku. I love Winston Duke. Um, I, I didn't like us that much, but I really liked him and us. I thought he was great in us. Anyway, and the second episode stars Brie Larson, who I really love, uh, which just won an Emmy. You've said you like to watch new and different things, so I suggest this. It puts you in the shoes of the others. Um, I have not watched it, and I'll be honest with you, I probably will not. I've just never got into VR and I've got a big VR rig downstairs. Uh, I mean, I mean, we would play what's that thing with lightsabers. you beat something or other. We would play that all the time. We played all the time. Um, and I love the, uh, uh, there was a star Wars game too, where you, you, you enter and it's called Vader something. I can't remember the name of the game now, but I played a bunch of that, but I gotta be honest with you. I, I, I've never got into VR. Uh, at all, really. Um, I know I worked with somebody who was like hardcore into VR, like wanted everything to be VR and wanted to put everything into VR development. But I think VR, it just never took off the way people thought it would. Now, that doesn't mean it won't in the future, right? But I feel there's there's a lot of similarities between the VR craze and 3D craze. Because, you know, 3D became a bit of a craze and every television manufacturer was building 3D capable TVs and all that kind of stuff, but nobody bought them. And now I don't even think anybody makes them anymore. And I felt like a number of years ago, we were in that same cusp. It felt like VR was going to be like was about to explode and about to become the big thing. And there has been some growth, but I feel like it just kind of sputtered. But again, that doesn't mean it can't become something like really, really huge moving forward. I, I'm just seeing some similarities between that and 3D, but that's just me. But yeah, I, I was never into it all that much. So I, I have not tried this and I'll be honest with you, Schnepp, I probably won't, but I bet you some people are watching the show right now who have and know what you're talking about. All right. Thanks for sharing that. All right. Uh, Dwayne Jackson, we already talked about his question. So R. Lee writes, Hey, John, did you hear that Roku is about to release a streamer that adds support to Apple customers, allowing them to watch HBO Max from any Apple device to their TV through Roku? Uh, somebody's playing hardball, Roku or HBO. I think, uh, do you think they'll ever work out a deal? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, listen, I told you guys from day one, from day one, when we start talking about the fact that um, Roku and HBO Max and Peacock, um, that Peacock and HBO Max weren't launching on Roku. That was a big problem for them. But I said right from the beginning, they will work this out. It will get worked out. You will see HBO Max on Roku. You will see Peacock on Roku. It'll happen. They will get this worked out and straightened out. And guess what? Peacock and Roku have already worked out a deal. You're going to get Peacock if you can't already. You're about to get Peacock on Roku. I absolutely 100% believe that HBO Max will get there too. So here's the thing. Roku already has a built-in ability that you can just stream whatever is on any of your Android devices to your TV. So like if I've got my tablet, my Android tablet, and I open up something on YouTube, there's a little icon, a little broadcast icon on it and I can hit the broadcast button and it says, oh, do you want to transmit to your YouTube? Yes. And YouTube just automatically connects with my Android device. It's great. My television. So two different things. There's my Roku, which is connected to my TV, but my TV has the built in capability to receive Apple 
broadcasting. So like my iPad connects to my television. So the way I've been watching uh, Raised by Wolves is that I open up the HBO Max on my iPad, start it up, and then I hit the little broadcast button and connect it to my TV. Boom. And then it just plays on my TV. It's been great. So I did end up getting HBO Max because I found out I can just connect it to my TV and away it goes. And I just had to do it from my iPad. A little bit of a pain in the ass, but hey, I wanted to watch uh, Lovecraft Country and I wanted to watch Raised by Wolves. So there it is. So basically, Roku has always had that built-in, or at least for a long time, has had that built-in ability to just cast from your Android devices. From what I understand, they're now just building in, so not it's not just going to be Android, it can also be from Apple devices. It's a great thing. I honestly don't think it has anything to do with HBO Max. <clears throat> I honestly don't think it has anything to do with HBO Max, but one of the benefits will be if you have an iPhone or if you have an iPad like I do, then, and you got a Roku, you're going to be golden. You're going to just be able to transmit from your thing to there. And I think it's a great idea. I think it's a really good idea. All right. Next up, um, Chris Foster writes, question. I was thinking of starting a podcast of me interviewing family, friends, coworkers, etc. I love talking to people and learning new things about people, but should I be hesitant since no one knows me or the person I'm talking to? You rock. All right. This, this, that's a great question, Chris, because it brings up the dilemma that a lot of people face. Do I do something because I think it'll be fun and enjoyable to do or Am I doing something to try to get a big audience? I will tell you right now, yes, starting up a brand new podcast where the point of the podcast is you interviewing your personal friends and coworkers and whatever that nobody else knows, that's going to be a struggle to get an audience. But getting an audience is not the most important thing. The most important thing is, do you enjoy doing it? And listen, dude, it's the internet. Everything will have somebody watch it. Or listen to it, right? So believe, you will get some people listening to it. Make no mistake, you will. But yeah, it, it will. You just have to get into it, understanding that hey, I'm not. I'm probably not going to get ten thousand listeners on this, right? I'm not. I'm not going to get a thousand listeners on this, and that's okay. If it's something you enjoy, that's what I keep telling people to do. Look, get involved in podcasting and blogging and YouTubing, but do it because it's fun. Do it because it's enjoyable. Do it because it's you adding your voice to the online conversation. Don't do it because you think it's going to make you famous, right? I've been doing this for over 10 years. I'm still jack shit nobody. <laughs> so don't do it because you think it's going to make you famous. Do it because you love doing it. And if it's something you think you're going to love doing, I think that sounds like a great idea, Chris, but just be realistic and understanding that, hey, don't be disappointed when you open up your Anchor FM or whatever podcasting uh, service you use and look at the statistics and see, oh, we had 14 people listen to it. Just don't be disappointed by that. And, and it's all good. If you enjoy it and it gives you an opportunity to flex some creative muscles and you have fun doing it and the people who are doing it with you are having a good time, to me, that's a win. So I say go for it. And then you know what? Once you do this for a while and you get a little bit of experience in podcasting, then if you've got a love for like car stereo systems, maybe start a podcast later on about car stereo systems. But now you've got a little bit of experience doing podcasts and it might make it even better and more fun for you. Anyway, that's my thoughts on that, Chris. I hope you found that helpful. All right. Next up, uh, Dwayne Jackson writes, uh, hey, John and the family with the Flash movie. 
and the family with the flash movie coming barring any delays it's already been delayed about 35 times you know four director changes four writer changes Ezra choking random women out on the street, whatever. It's already had a number of delays. It's interesting to hear it will debut new characters. I'm wondering what those might be. I hope to see a cameo of Wally West or Captain Adam. How cool would that be? Honestly, I don't care. I I, I mean, I, I don't... Quick little cameos by brand new characters? I don't care. Look, honestly, I'm more interested in them just telling a great Flash story. And it's not like while Flash has appeared in another movie, he hasn't had his own standalone movie yet. And the more you can keep this story focused on him, the better. Don't get me wrong. I love that we're going to get Ben Affleck. And don't get me wrong. I love that we're going to get Michael Keaton. And maybe we'll get Cyborg, depending how that drama plays out. Maybe we'll get a couple other characters too. But honestly, I'm not really worried or concerned about any of those. Just tell a great Barry story tell a great story about barry and really focus especially in his first film on barry more because like in spider-man homecoming we were all worried me especially that that robert downey jr i mean we were all worried that that was going to be a um an iron man 4 we re we were with guest star spider-man we were all worried that spider-man homecoming was really going to be iron man 4 with guest star uh, Spider-Man, right? Fortunately, they really minimized Tony's um, presence in the movie, and they really did focus more on uh, on Peter, and it really was Peter's movie. As long as they do that, then I think we're going to be good. Um, oh, and somebody just, uh, the Blad, Blad B just sent in a, a tip on the Super Chat. Thank you, with a badge on that. Thank you so much for that, Blad. I appreciate that, man. Um, all right. Let's go. Next up, uh, Ramen Fa Tom Yam writes, John, is it possible thus likely? Ah, uh, no, 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 no. Likely and possible are not the same thing. Likely and possible are totally different things. Likely means that it will probably happen. Possible does not suggest that. Possible just asks, is it not impossible? All right. That, so the, remember, these are two different things. But is it possible, thus likely, that WB could resolve Tenet's sound mixing issues before it comes onto streaming? It could be, but only if Chris Nolan signs off on it. Now, <clears throat> this is a very rare situation. Normally, the studio has all the control and all the say. And if they want to do something before it's released on home video, the director and the director doesn't like it tough. If the director doesn't like it tough. Christopher Nolan is a different situation. Warner Brothers is all in on Christopher Nolan. Warner Brothers has moved heaven and earth to make sure that they stay in the Christopher Nolan business. And um, therefore, they give Christopher Nolan a lot more authority and say over his movies than they do for almost any other director ever. So it all comes down to, hey, if Christopher Nolan likes his sound mix, he's going to keep it just the way it is. So is it possible? Yes. But it's only possible if Christopher Nolan decides he wants to do it. And hopefully he's heard the the um, the suggestions. Let's not call them complaints. Let's call them suggestions. Let's hope Christopher Nolan has heard the, the, the suggestions from the audience and will go ahead and want to make those changes. All right. But Dog writes. 
Thoughts on Dick Tracy? Oh, like the original one? Yeah, the one that was out a number of years ago. I loved it. Um, great score, ensemble, visual style. Uh, it was briefly at the forefront of pop culture in 1990. Interesting. People seem to remember Warren Beatty's relationship with Madonna better than they remember the movie. It's true. Everybody loves Scandal. Everybody. And wasn't that Al Pacino in that? Didn't he do like an uncredited thing? He was under all the make. It was either Al Pacino or De Niro. I think it was Pacino. Um, I liked it. Listen, it was kind of ahead of its time, right? Like Dick Tracy was basically a comic book movie before comic book movies were really popular, but it was really different and weird. Look, does Dick Tracy hold up today? I glanced at it again about five years ago. It does not hold up, you know? Not like, see, like the first X-Men movie, which was, I think, 99 or 2000, whatever. It holds up. I, I argue the first X-Men movie really does hold up. The Dick Tracy one doesn't. But I remember at the time when it came out, I quite enjoyed it. But yes, everybody will remember the 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 scandal stuff uh, more. Absolutely, they do. All right, Scarlet writes. Big Hollywood stars such as Chris Evans and Mark Ruffalo are, are also heavily involved in politics and make no secret about their hatred towards Trump. So why is it so surprising when The Rock gets involved? I think for a couple of reasons, because The Rock has the difference between a Mark Ruffalo and a Chris Evans and Dwayne The Rock Johnson is Dwayne The Rock Johnson is the de facto biggest movie star in the world. He's the biggest star in the world. And traditionally, he has always stayed very centrist and stayed out of it. So, yes, people like Chris Evans or uh, Andy Garcia or Mark Ruffalo or Clint Eastwood or whatever have always come out both on left and right, respectively, um, to make their political opinions very known. And there's nothing wrong with that. And that's perfectly fine. But it's a big deal with The Rock because he has always been very, very, like I said, Switzerland. He's been Switzerland all the time. Yes, he spoke at like the 2000 National Republican Convention, but he was really there to encourage people to vote. As he said, he's voted Republican, he's voted Democrat, he's but he's never come out and do, done this. So it, it's a big deal. I thought it was a very interesting deal, regardless of whatever side he decided to endorse. That's irrelevant. I just thought it was an interesting thing that the de facto biggest movie star in the world who has never weighed in on things like that decided to weigh in on it. And I thought it was a very interesting question asking, was it a good idea as the world's biggest movie star to get in on that? So that's why I thought it was a really interesting topic. And um, yeah, I still do. I, th I still find it fascinating. All right. The one and only writes, Hey, John and Rob, Rob's not here today. Uh, I've been a fan since the pandemic. Thanks to my sister, Juliana. Well, thank you, Juliana, for turning one on to the show. Uh, today is her birthday and would love if you could greet her. Thanks for taking us through tough times. Keep on the great work. Well, thank you so much for that one. And Juliana, happy birthday to you. May you have a wonderful day and a wonderful year ahead of you. And thank you, Juliana, so much for turning your brother on to the show. I appreciate that very much. So may you have a fantastic day, Juan. Make sure she has a fantastic day. All right. Uh, Matthias Peterson writes, Disney Plus finally dropped in Denmark. That's awesome. And gave me a chance to see Toy Story 4. I loved Toy Story 4. Loved it. And right after I went to your spoiler vid uh, video, always do when I catch up on movies. Keep up the amazing work, buddy. Looking forward to your doc. Oh, thank you so much, man. I appreciate that. And that, of course, gives me an opportunity uh, to plug 
Shameless plug. It's my show. I get to plug whatever I want. Shut up. All right. To plug my documentary, Movie Trailers, A Love Story, um, it will probably be available. I'm aiming right now for sometime in November. Um, I did find out kind of exciting news, though, regarding my documentary. Not 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 earth shattering, uh, like mind blowing news, but for me, pretty kind of fun, exciting news I just got regarding my documentary. Um, and I'm going to be able to share that news probably within the week. So I'm, I'm kind of looking forward. Again, I don't want to overhype. It's not the hugest news in the world. Don't don't get me wrong. But for me, it's kind of fun. Um, and yes, for those of you guys who are Patreon supporters, uh, I will be in the next couple of weeks, we'll be arranging a private screening for like maybe 15 to 20, maybe 30 of our Patreon supporters to do a private Zoom call viewing uh, of my movie. So uh, keep your guys' eyes open for that. Uh, anyway, glad to hear that Disney Plus finally is continuing to roll out and drop out in more territories. I'm glad you had a chance to watch Toy Story 4. I really did think it was wonderful. I, I still think like Toy Story 3 is still the best Toy Story movie to me. Um, but I thought 4 was was a worthy addition to the Toy Story lineup. I really did. I'm glad you liked it, Matthias. All right, next up. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Quasim Talby writes... Greetings from Paris. Ooh, Paris. Um, <clears throat> it's funny you mentioned Paris. Anne, my wife Anne right now is watching Vikings for the first time. I watched it years ago, but she's started watching Vikings and she's up to the season now where they're, the, the Vikings are laying siege to Paris. So it's just kind of funny that you mentioned you're from Paris. Anyway, greetings from Paris, John Robert. Have you seen the recent trailer for the new Marvel slash Hulu series Hellstrom? If yes, what did you think of it? Thanks. Didn't love it. Not gonna lie, I didn't love it. Um, I didn't hate it. I, I I didn't dislike it. But you know, when I when I heard about the show and I saw the first little teaser they dropped months ago, and I read the concept, I'm like, okay, I'm interested in this show. I'm interested. And I'm still interested. But we talk all the time about the job of a trailer is to take your excitement level, whether it's high or whether it's low, and just bump it up a couple notches, right? This latest trailer that came out last week didn't do didn't get me more excited it didn't get me less excited but it didn't get me any more excited you know what all i could think of though was the lead guy i kept thinking that was the actor who played the deep i mean when i kept watching i'm like okay it's not him but oh my god this guy looks like you totally spitting image of the guy who plays the deep in the boys that's all i could think about so yeah didn't love the trailer but i am looking forward to checking out the show when it when it drops on hulu i am looking forward to checking it out all right. Uh, Simon Blakemore writes, uh, hey, John and Rob, today is my birthday. I was wondering, uh, did you watch the Undertaker documentary, The Last Ride? I thought it was an amazing look at the man behind the character, The Undertaker. Well, first of all, Simon, happy birthday to you, my friend. Again, uh, may you have a great day and a fabulous year ahead of you, dude. Uh, I did watch The Last Ride. Now, <clears throat> I'm somebody who grew up watching a lot of professional wrestling. Uh, I grew up watching a lot of professional wrestling. And uh, I mean, I watched it, you know, when I was a little kid in the, you know, Hulk Hogan era. And then all the way through, I watched it regularly all the way through to really the, the, the attitude era, you know, that's the, you know, stone cold and the rock and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then I kind of, I, I haven't really followed it much for years. Now I still watch WrestleMania every year. 
and I will still once in a while watch one of the other big pay-per-views, whether it's SummerSlam or something like that. Ann and Kaori continue to watch wrestling all the time. I watch a little bit more NXT now. Um, I watch a little bit more NXT, uh, specifically because Kaori's uh, boyfriend, Nigel, is the color commentator on NXT. So... Um, so I'll watch it for Nigel, uh, a, a little bit, but I really haven't followed it a whole ton, but undertaker is a guy who has been around. I mean, he finally just retired, but he has been around for decades and I used to watch undertaker when I was younger and this documentary, this documentary series, I can't remember if it was five episodes or six episodes or whatever. I can't remember, but you don't have to know anything about professional wrestling. And you don't have to know anything or have ever watched wrestling to really be drawn in by this story in, in, in this docu-series of the Undertaker, The Last Ride, as you know, in the last couple of years of The Undertaker's career as he was winding down his career. It's um, it's really wonderful. And I say that as a guy who's who's not a regular wrestler, wrestling watcher anymore, but it is really wonderful. If you get the opportunity to check it out, you really should. Anyway, happy birthday again, Simon. All right, Captain Blue Pants writes, uh, randomly pointing out that Journey Smollett, uh, Aldous Hodge, Jesse Plemons, and Michael B. Jordan were all in the very awesome Friday Night Lights uh, on their come up. That show was like an incubator for young talent, amazing actors. You know, everybody, especially Rob, Rob keeps telling me too that that show was amazing. I never really watched it. But I think if I'm not mistaken, Rob says it's one of like his top three or four favorite shows of all time. And I may have to check it out. By the way, you know, when we talked yesterday about Aldous Hodge, who was in Invisible Man, he was great in that. He's now that he's going to be Hawkman and Black Adam. And I mentioned I haven't really seen him a lot. A lot of people reminded me that he was in Supernatural. I totally never knew that was him in Supernatural. Apparently, he was in another show called Leverage, which I didn't watch. Then a bunch of people reminded me that he was in Straight Outta Compton, but I don't remember who he played in Straight Outta Compton. Um, so th there's a number of things I need to go and revisit because I really loved him in Invisible Man. So I'm kind of excited that he's going to be Hawkman. All right. Next up, Jordan RTK writes, can we take a moment to appreciate that James Gunn being fired by Disney resulting in him working for both Disney and Warner Brothers DC on multiple comic book projects had an extremely positive outcome for both James Gunn and the fans. Oh, no, listen, I was very, you guys remember, I was extremely critical of Disney in general, but Alan Horn, and listen, I have a I have a world of respect for Alan Horn, the high lord of all things movies at Disney. Alan Horn is a boss. Like, don't get me wrong. He's he's like first ballad Hollywood Hall of Famer in my books. But if you guys remember back to the whole time when when James Gunn was getting fired, I was very critical of Disney and specifically Alan Horn in the way they handled the situation, right? I was extremely critical of how they handled that situation. Um, I'm glad everything got worked out. I'm glad James is coming back to do Guardians 3. I'm, I'm really happy for all that. But I still thought it was a mismanaged situation. A situation that James Gunn will be the first one to tell you was his own fault for creating. James Gunn will be the first guy to tell you it was his fault for creating it. But I really thought that they mismanaged Disney and Alan Horn specifically mismanaged that whole situation badly. That being said, there is no denying that the results 
of that mismanagement has turned into a big win for everybody. James Gunn being able to go over to Warner Brothers to direct a DC movie, <clears throat> I think is incredible. Number one, from a diplomatic point of view, I think James Gunn directing a DC movie has done a lot to diffuse a lot of the uh, corporate zombie DC fanboy war against the corporate zombie Marvel fanboy war. Because now they've, they've got, it's like they just had a marriage, you know, like when one king and another king decide to let their son and daughter get married to kind of make peace. That's what it was kind of like. James Gunn going over to direct that kind of made peace. Like now Jay, they, everybody's got a shared interest in this, right? Um, plus, James Gunn directing a Suicide Squad movie is just perfection. That's just great. And what we saw from that little sizzle they played at DC Fandom looked awesome. Like looked absolutely awesome. I cannot wait to watch that crap. I can personally not wait to watch that crap. I think that's going to be great. So, and, and you know, it's so ultimately, I think it's been great for James because James gets to direct a dream project. I think ultimately it's going to be great for Warner Brothers because they're going to get a great movie out of it. And then they're going to, and DC still gets to have, or uh, Marvel still gets to have Mac to come back and do Guardians 3. And by the way, James is now doing another thing with Warner Brothers Whereas he's going to be the uh, the executive producer, he's going to direct the first few episodes of the new Peacemaker show on HBO Max with John Cena from Suicide Squad. So he's going to do more with Disney. He's going to do more with DC. And I think it's turned into a win for everybody. So yeah, I, I think it's a horribly mismanaged situation, but it did turn out to benefit everybody, which is kind of a good thing to see. All right. <clears throat> James Argento writes. Clark Gregg can, uh, can be in Nick Fury's show because in the final season of S.H.I.E.L.D., even though I know S.H.I.E.L.D. does not affect the MCU proper, uh, they made him an LMD. Every few episodes, they can find a new and fun way to kill him. I know I had a lot of people writing to me, you know, when I, we talked about the Nick Fury show that's coming to Disney Plus the other day. One of the things that I said that I would be interested in seeing, because even though I did not like the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. show at all, I will always buy into anything Clark Gregg as Agent Coulson or Clark Gregg doing it. I'll buy into Clark Gregg doing anything. But specifically, I love when Clark Gregg is playing um, Agent Coulson, even though I didn't like the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. TV show. Uh, him and Ming-Na. So I said, I would love to see Coulson back. And then I got all these messages from people. Oh, you clearly haven't been following. You, don't, you, you can't have Coulson because of this, this, and this. I'm like, are you effing kidding me? This is the MC fake death universe, right? Like if I were to tell you, oh, you know, uh, you know, Gamora in Endgame. Wait, 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 one second there, John. You you don't know. You, Gamora can't be in Endgame because she died in Infinity War. God, dudes, this is the MCU. This is the MCU. There are no consequences in the MCU. There is no permanent ramifications in the MCU. There are no permanent stakes in the MCU. Everything's undone. Five minutes after something big big happens, it can be undone five minutes later. So don't worry about how they get Agent Coulson in. Just know that it's completely possible that they get Agent Coulson in. And I'm not saying that they will bring in Clark Gregg for a Nick Fury show. I'm clearly not saying that they'll, they will do that. I'm just saying I'd be down for it. Just, But I'm a big Clark Gregg fanboy, so there's that. All right, next up. Uh, Butt Dogs Butt writes... And sends in $20. Thank you for supporting the channel on that level, man. Uh, John, thanks for allowing me to be a part of your community. I love asking questions. I work in a polished accounting world, so it's great to come on your show, uh, lose decades of maturity, and become butt dog. Always happy to support your work, Richard. Dude, let me tell you something right now about accounting. 
I remember when I was taking law, one of the required uh, courses I had to take was accounting. Dude, you know what? I'm I I'm a great student. I pick up stuff like in a class. If I got the right textbooks and everything, I can just absorb information. But accounting, oh, dude, I I I'm not gonna I'm not lying. I struggled with accounting. I struggled. That that to me is not an easy thing. It it made me. It gave me a really elevated sense of appreciation for people who are accountants. As a matter of fact, this whole show, my whole YouTube channel, my whole business would not be possible were it not for a dude named Josh, uh, who is my accountant. I was very lucky when I was forming Carson Drive Media, which is the name of my, you know, my, my main company is called Carson Drive Media. When I was putting it together, the first thing I had to do was find an accountant who knew how to do all the things with the money because I could not do it. And I was very lucky that I found a really good accountant who has kind of looked after me for the last three years. <laughs> and it's been great. So I have a high, high appreciate either way, man. Love to have you here. And it's great talking about movies. We just get to become fans, right? Regardless whether we're doctors or nurses or accountants or whatever, we just get to be fans. when We're talking about movies and I'm glad you're here for that. So thanks for that, dude. I appreciate it. All right. Next up, Mark C writes, Thinking about the third Jurassic World, I wish they'd go full on ze uh, Xenozoic. Was that like the like that post-apocalyptic? Wasn't that like some kind of post-apocalyptic Earth where it's in the future, but there's dinosaurs with humans? Anyway, I, I can't remember. Uh, uh, Xenozoic Tales, a.k.a. Cadillacs and Dinosaurs. John, what do you think about this dream of an idea? Oh, I, I don't like it. it. I'll be honest. That's completely contradictory to what Jurassic World is. Uh, I think that's really contradictory. Hold on, a second. I just had a bit of a jump. Let me get let me get back to it here. I think that's really contradictory to what um, Jurassic World is. You know, Jurassic World is about the sudden reintroduction of this thing into a world and a world coming to grips with what does this mean. So I think that's kind of counter. When you look at every Jurassic Park movie or Jurassic World movie, that's kind of been the underlying premise of it. And I think that you got to continue with that. So listen. Uh, Xenozoic, if it is what I'm thinking of, and it might not be, that could be something completely different. I mean, you could do something that completely different. I don't think that fits in the Jurassic Park brand, though. You know, it could be something totally different. Jurassic Park doesn't own dinosaurs. You can do dinosaurs and other thing, but I don't think it works under the, honestly, just for me, it doesn't work under the Jurassic Park or Jurassic World brand. All right. Frankie G writes, Someone mentioned Utopia, that new show, yeah. Um, I don't know how I feel about it yet. I haven't even watched it yet. Um, however, because it's got John... Uh, I almost said John Malkovich, not John Malkovich. Um, it's got Rain Wilson, John Cusack, and I'm forgetting who the other person is. But it looks really interesting. I want to see this. I don't know how I feel about it yet. However, my... However, very intriguing, like a multiple car accident on the freeway that you just can't look away from. Definitely something different. John Wick on meth. More like... Uh, hell than Utopia. Again, I don't know anything about it. I just started seeing trailers for it on Amazon Prime. I think it was popping up as I was watching The Boys. I think it's an Amazon show. It might be HBO Max, but I think it's an Amazon show. And I just thought, holy crap, John Cusack, Rain Wilson. Okay, looks kind of cool. And I really like the content that Amazon puts out. So I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to give Utopia a shot at one of these times. But I'm hearing it's strange, which I kind of like. Anyway, Willow writes... If in a completely imaginary scenario, your documentary turns you a profit of $5 million, 
Uh, would you continue on doing your show just as a hobby or will you be moving on to other things or even early retirement? Oh, that's an interesting question. Well, first of all, you know, my movie is not going to make $5 million. <laughs> Let's just be clear about that. I'll be thrilled if I can make like $10,000 on it. But um, all right, what would I do? That's a good question. I think here's what I think would probably happen. I don't know this for sure. I just have too much fun doing this to not do it anymore, but it would probably change. I would probably end up making uh, the John Campus show a weekly show. I would probably end up making it a weekly show, but in proper studio space and hire some more team members and really like make it a very, very top notch production wise show. And then talk about the biggest, best things that came out that week. Because what I would also want to do is, you know, we talked about this on the show the other day, my kind of ultimate goal for Carson Drive Media, which is my company that I just mentioned, is that, man, wouldn't it be great if I can make a little bit of money with this documentary, with um, with movie trailers, a love story, if I could make a little bit of money on it, wouldn't it be great if I could then take that money and then invest it into another creative project? One that I don't have to direct myself, but maybe find a director who's got a really neat idea and I can partner with them as a producer and we can develop an idea and I can help fund it with the money I made from that movie. And then hopefully that goes on to make a little bit of money and then take that. And then I would love to see, I mean, this is pie in the sky delusions of grandeur kind of dreams, but you got to have some of those, but I would love it if I could get to the point that like I was helping produce multiple projects a year, like not being the director of them, but just helping be a producer on multiple projects a year. And so I would love to do like the John Campbell show becomes a weekly show. And then I have the rest of the week to not just prep for that show, but also work as a producer and help fund other projects. I would love that. I would love that. Cause you know, in the world, what I've really discovered is in the world of writer, producer, director, which I have been on a couple of projects. I've been writer, producer, director on the anniversary. I was writer, producer, director on Prince of Peace, God of War. And I'm writer, producer, director on uh, movie trailers, a love story. My real strength, and I've enjoyed aspects of all of it, but my, my real strengths lie with producing. My real strengths lie with producing. And um, I would love to do that. So I think if in this pie in the sky dream scenario, I were to make like $5 million, which is not going to happen. But if I did, I think you'd see me start to shift more towards that, uh, funding other people's projects, moving my show once a week, that sort of thing. But that's a big what if scenario. But thank you for giving me an opportunity to dream a little bit, Willow. I appreciate that. All right. Shadow Jester writes. Hey, John and Rob. Rob is not here today. Over under 70% on this theory. Darcy, that's Kat Jennings' character in the MCU. Uh, by the way, I love her. Uh, will be brought on to WandaVision as a dimensional rift expert and have a medium to small role in the show. But also it will hint at Jane having cancer due to exposure to the Aether. I'm over. Um, hmm. Well, I mean, we know, here's the thing, Kat Dennings, Darcy character, is in WandaVision. We know that. That's that that's a that's something that we just know. That's just a fact. So her character is in WandaVision. I thought it was really interesting. I, by the way, I didn't see her in the WandaVision trailer. 
but I mentioned that I didn't see her in the WandaVision trailer. And then I had a few of you guys write and say, no, 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 John, she does appear in it. I, I didn't see. I have to go back and go through frame by frame to see if I can see her. At any rate, I do suspect her role is going to be a rather small one. I think her role is going to be a rather small one. Uh, but I don't think she's going to be a dimensional rift expert. I just think... Because I don't... Because remember, she's not the big scientist. When you go back and watch her in the Thor movies, she's Jane's assistant, but she's not the big scientist herself. So I don't think she suddenly becomes a dimensional rift expert. But who knows? Maybe that is the way they go. All I know is that I really like Kat Dennings ever since 40-Year-Old Virgin. I didn't watch uh, Two Broke Girls. I never did watch that show. But <clears throat> I do love her, and I'm looking forward to seeing this character coming back. All right, next up, we got Ryan Loner who writes, I really regret that we won't get to see Siskel and Ebert's review of the new Dune as their review of the David Lynch film was one of my favorites. Just for how completely baffled they were, five minutes in, I shouted out loud, I give up. I don't remember that from them, but man, I'm telling you, Siskel and Ebert, I remember when I was a little kid and, and I would pop them on, they were almost as, not quite, but almost as responsible for really nurturing and stoking my love of movies uh, as much as almost anything else. Being able to turn on TV and hearing guys talking about movies, <clears throat> it was very foundational for me. And why to this day, my favorite film critic has always been uh, Siskel uh, or Roger Ebert, I should say. Roger Ebert's always been my favorite film critic. And I usually disagreed with him. I disagreed with him on like at least half of the movies. I would disagree with him. But I love the way he saw movies and his ability to express his thoughts on movies. See, I don't need a film critic to agree with me for me to like that film critic. I, can, I have film critics that agree with me on almost everything and I just can't stand them as film critics. And I have film critics who more than half the time will have a completely opposite opinion than I do on a movie. But they're some of my favorite film critics. Because what I really value in a film critic is not do they have the same opinion as me, but are they really good at having a broad imagination for how they view a movie and then their ability to express their thoughts on a movie? If you can have a, def if you can have a unique way of looking at a film and then have a really good gift at expressing what your perceptions of a film were, then I'm, I'll be a fan. I'll be a fan. I don't have to agree or disagree with your conclusions or perceptions, but it helps me appreciate my own perceptions more when I can hear somebody who's really good at expressing theirs. And uh, Ebert was one of the best at doing that. So, And Siskel was great too. I used to love that show. All right. Anyway, Dwayne Jackson writes, Hey, John and family, with Warner Brothers ramping up with their movies and the Snyder Cut and Black Adam coming, do you think Warner Brothers and DC should introduce more characters in the future like Red Tornado or Firestorm? Uh, they are J Justice League members. Should they expand their roster? Well, I mean, look, eventually, yes. I mean, obviously, like the further they go, I would make the argument that right now and with Black Adam, you are getting expansion, right? You're getting Adam Smasher and we're going to get Dr. Fate and we're going to get you know things like that. Hawkman. But I also think timing is going to be key. Listen, DC is in the midst, in sports terms, we call it a rebuilding year, right? Like after a sports team has been really dominant for a while, but then some of their stars start to retire or 
you know, they lose one or two of their superstars because of free agency. They go into what's called a rebuilding stage where they draft some new younger players, start to develop their team again. And you don't expect a lot of success initially, but you're building, right? You're building right now. DC is kind of in a bit of a rebuilding year or a rebuilding stage, I should say, because the first go round of the DCU did not turn out the way they wanted, right? They certainly had some success and idiots like me liked every single movie they put out. I mean, I've, I've liked every single DC movie they put out or DCEU movie they put out until Birds of Prey. I didn't like Birds of Prey, but before that, I liked every single one that came out. But not a lot of people thought the way I did. And not a lot of people appreciated the brilliance of, you know, Man of Steel, or a lot of people didn't appreciate Batman versus Superman or Ben Affleck's Batman the way I did. A lot of people didn't, whatever. But so what you got have now is a new sheriff in town, Walter Hamada, who's come in. He said, let's simplify everything. Let's not worry so much about interconnectedness. Let's worry about telling good individual stories. Let's, uh, let's adopt a kiss method, a keep it simple, stupid kind of thing, and really ground and make some excellent films. And they've done that. And so I think they should absolutely eventually start expanding the roster more. Yes, but I think they need to take a certain pace with it. I think Walter Hamada is a very patient man. And I think that patience has already paid off. And I think it's going to continue to pay off. So yes, they will eventually, but I don't think they should rush to do it too quickly. I don't think they should rush to do it too quickly. Let's wait and see. All right, next up, John Argoat Rodriguez writes, after three and a half years, I finally completed and printed my script for my first feature. That's awesome, man. And I want to thank you for the inspiration. Do something every day, no matter how big or small, that gets you closer to your goal. Really helped push me further. Uh, in the end, the script came to 204 pages. Just so you know, that's too long. That is far too long. Um, probably a little too long. How was your script? Can't wait to shoot it. Uh, also, how did you deal with Aaron Sorkin and the Hollywood execs calling you nonstop, wanting to know your screenwriting secrets? Yeah, my my first draft, by the time I finished my first draft of the anniversary, it was something somewhere in the neighborhood of your length there. It was somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 pages. Um. And then over the course of another year, like it took me a couple of years to finish that draft. And then over, because I was also working in school and I wasn't dedicated to it and whatever. But then over the course of another year, as I did new revisions of it, I actually ended it. And the shooting script for the anniversary ended up being about 80 pages. <laughs> it went from like 200 and something pages down to about 80 pages. The actual, and I, I just came across an actual copy, a physical copy of my script. Uh, again, the actual shooting copy of the movie ended up being about 80 pages. Um, so yes, 204 pages, far too long. Um, get, get, get that one, get that under control a little bit. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, that's the next stage of it is, uh, revising it, winnowing it down. That's a big part of the process, but Hey man, good on you. Everybody says they want to write a script. Not everybody actually wants to put in the work to actually do it. And now at the end of the day, whether you actually make this into a movie or not, it doesn't matter. You did something 95% of the people never get past actually sitting down and writing it. And I think that's awesome. Well done on you, John. All right, next up, David T. writes, 
Hey, John, over under 90% that the episode Filoni directs in season two of Mandalorian is also the episode Ahsoka makes her debut. Honestly, I just can't see him letting anyone else direct his baby for the first time in real life. Well, I mean, first things first, it ain't, it's not his call. It's John Favreau's call. John Favreau's the boss. He is the showrunner. But you're right. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine. Like Dave Filoni, uh, who, I'll tell you what. I've always liked Dave Filoni. I mean, he made Rebels. I'm not a fan of Clone Wars, but I really I like what he did with Rebels. But and I've met Dave Filoni. I've always liked him. Um, and I I never nothing made me gain more respect for him than watching the Mandalorian season one behind the scenes documentary that was on Disney Plus, the making of Mandalorian, because there was an episode where he's on set. Or he's sitting around the table and he's saying, I don't know what the F I'm doing when it comes to directing live action. I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm completely lost. Thank goodness I have John Favreau here that I can apprentice under and I can learn from. And I will tell you what, I already respected Dave Filoni, but my respect level for Dave Filoni hearing that shot through the roof. And I remember saying on my show the day after that episode air of that Mandalorian roundtable, I said, you watch, Dave Filoni is going to be, he's not there yet, but he is going to be a great live action director. Not good, he's gonna be great. And the reason he's gonna be great is because, listen, you gotta have a certain amount of ego. You have to, you have to have a certain amount of ego to be a director, you do. But most directors, even if they're new, they wanna, they wanna pretend like they've got all the answers. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. I'm, I'm in charge. I'm the vision. I'm the artist. I'm the artist. I know what I'm doing. Having the attitude that Dave Filoni had, like me seeing him on set in front of the camera going, I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea what I'm doing. Oh God, thank God I've got John Favreau here that I can learn from. And I'm like, that right there is why he's going to be great. Because you need to have a certain amount of ego, yes, but you also got to know when you don't know something. And, 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 and it's that kind of teachable spirit that is going to make him absorb, not just from Jon Favreau, but all those other great directors that are working with him on that show. He's going to absorb from all of them. And because he has a teachable spirit, I am telling you, he is going to be a truly great live action director. That all being said, I have never understood his obsession with that one character. That Ahsoka, everything, all, if, if, if it was up to Dave Filoni, screw Darth Vader, screw Luke Skywalker, all of Star Wars is about Ahsoka Tano. I've never understood his obsession with that character, but whatever. So while at the end of the day, uh, it will be John Favreau's decision who directs which episodes. I got to agree with you. Like Filoni, I cannot imagine John Favreau not letting Dave Filoni direct whatever episode that Ahsoka Tano is going to be in. I mean, that's his baby. I mean, he, he will want to be the first one to direct a live action iteration and incarnation of that character. No doubt. I have no doubt. And if for whatever reason, I can't imagine why John Favreau would put another director to direct that episode. If for whatever reason that happened, Dave Filoni would literally crawl on his hands and knees to John Favreau's doorstep with torn 
sackcloth around him and sprinkling dirt and dust on his head. That's some biblical references for some of you guys. And and basically pleading, let me direct that episode. He would plead and plead and plead until John Favreau would finally relent. But yeah, I I can't imagine. I mean, I don't know. I haven't seen this the episode breakdowns, but I agree with you. I can't imagine. I can't imagine that whatever episode Ahsoka shows up in, that Dave Filoni's not directing that episode. Now, look, Dave Filoni, he has been the weakest director on, on The Mandalorian so far. His episodes have been the weakest ones. But that's because it's his first time. It's his first time ever directing anything live action. He's never done it before. With his type of attitude... And his kind of visual storytelling ideas in his head. The way, and the more and more he learns how to interpret that from his head, not to on a cartoon screen, but into a live action environment, you watch. He's going to be awesome. He's going to be awesome. You watch. And I fully anticipate that even though I thought his episodes of season one were the worst ones, I think you are going to see that the episodes that he directs in season two are going to be exponentially better than his episodes in season one because now he's got some experience under his belt he had never done it before now he has and he's been around Filoni or uh or Favreau and these other directors more now you watch his episodes in season two are going to be exponentially better than the ones he did in season one mark my words I'll be shocked if they're not anyway uh let's see here Mandalorian of Gondor writes are there any fun or dark fan movie theories you'd like to believe to in even... It, let me see if I can read this again. Are there any fun or dark fan movie theories you like to believe to in every... If there... To in even... You'd like to believe... You probably didn't mean to put two in there. Let me try it again. Are there any fun or dark movie theories you like... To believe in, take out that too, even if they're never true. For example, a few of mine are Joker is a war veteran uh, in The Dark Knight Rises. That's an interesting theory. Kevin McAllister is Jigsaw. Fight Club is Calvin and Hobbes. Oh, that's a good one. I've not heard that one. I like that one. E.T. is Force Sensitive. Of course, that, that was a theory that got really blown up when we got into... Uh, was, it the, was it The Phantom Menace? Was that the one where, where you saw E.T.'s in the Senate? For those of you who don't know, it, when you go to the Phantom Menace, I think it's the Phantom Menace, um, there's a scene in the Senate, and you know all the senators have their own little saucer things that they're standing in? For those of you who don't know, there's a scene where you get a wider shot of a bunch of different senators and their saucers, and if you look really closely, one of them has a bunch of ETs. So obviously that was just a fun little Easter egg. It doesn't really mean that E.T. is connected to Star Wars, but it was a fun little thing. That's an interesting one. I tell you what, I've never heard the Fight Club, Calvin and Hobbes one. I like that. That um, that Ed Norton Jr. is actually just is grown up Calvin. Oh, I like that one. That's kind of a cool one. I like that one. All right. Nicholas O. writes. Uh, fun fact, Aldous Hodge from Invisible Man also played a small role in Supernatural at the end of season two as one of the special children like Sam. Yeah, I think he killed Sam, didn't he? Yeah, I, I totally didn't realize that. I had so many of you guys write to me about that after yesterday's show when I mentioned that I, I had such a small sample size of uh, Aldous's uh, resume. And a lot of you guys wrote in to let me know, hey, Supernatural. So good to know. Thanks for that, Nicholas. Frank writes. Movies are getting delayed again and again, and Wonder Woman 84 is not 
uh, is not only the title of the movie, its release date is 2084. I know, right? Listen, I, I grow more and more pessimistic. Because, you know, for a lot of months now, I've, been, I've remained very optimistic about the theaters will be back. They will be on their feet. We will be back to normal sooner or later, and everything will be fine. I've been very optimistic. But, you know, the longer and longer we go, I'm getting more and more pessimistic. And I'm going to probably do my next thoughts on walks about this particular topic. I might even shoot that today. But uh, what really did it was I really thought that what would happen is this. Tenant will come out. And it may do okay. It may do poorly, whatever. But Tenant will come out. The theaters will start to open again. And then the next movie will come. And it'll build the momentum. And then the next movie will come. And it'll build momentum and all that kind of stuff. After Tenet came out, and by the way, it's, it's about to cross 300 million. Not bad considering we're in the middle of a global pandemic. Still not to where they would like it to be. But hey, 300 million in the middle of a pandemic. Not terrible. But it's when they announced that they were starting to move all the other movies. That Wonder Woman 84 that was supposed to come out after Tenet, now gone. Black Widow, which was supposed to come in November, now gone. Um, I, it's when that all started happening that I'm like, oh, well... There goes that hope and optimism I had about building on the momentum of things. And uh, I've gotten more pessimistic about it. And, you know, Wonder Woman 2084, that may, you may not be far off, Frank. You may not be far off. All right. Jordan RTK writes, did you see the story about Chadwick Boseman donating some of his pay to Sienna Miller? I did see that for 21 Bridges. It's incredible how many things this great man has done on and off camera. Yeah, I, I read. I didn't read all the details, but I did see that there's that story that he actually gave up a part of his salary so that there would be more money in the budget that, that could go to, to like his co-star Sienna Miller. Uh, I haven't read all the details about it, but obviously on a service, that sounds great. I mean, that that's really nice when you see things like that. You know, whenever, because, you know, Mark Wahlberg did that recently for one of his co-stars as well. I think that's always special, but you're right. You know, the more the curtain gets pulled back on the life of Chadwick Boseman, the more in, you, you can't help but be impressed by this individual, by this man. You just can't help but be impressed. Uh, but that was a really nice story to see, Jordan. Thanks for sharing that. All right. Movie Idiot writes. Hey, John, had a 12-hour shift and decided to listen to your Infinity War spoiler reviews videos to pass the time and take me back to when things were simpler. I do have to say that I think fake deaths are part of the comic genre and thus belong in the MCU. See, I first of all, yeah, we, I can't even remember how many. What did we do? Seven parts of something like for the uh, Infinity War spoiler? Like, we got so many questions came in. We literally had to do, I think, seven or eight parts. I can't even remember what the final number was. It was a, it was a bunch. So, yes, it probably did cover your 12-hour shift. Um, here's the thing. Fake deaths have not always been a part of comics. Um, Max, oh, what's Max? Landis. Max Landis did this great video on YouTube years ago. Um, Max Landis, Superman. He did this great video on YouTube um, uh, like many years ago. I think like eight years ago or something, right? Where basically 
he breaks down. It's really incredible. You should go check it out. If, if you get a chance, you should go check out this video he did. Uh, it's really something else. Well, that basically breaks down and he gets a whole bunch. When In this little video, this is from 2012. You're going to recognize uh, a lot of a lot of people uh, in this video. You're going to recognize a lot of people in this video. Anyway, in it, Max Landis, the ultimate um, thesis of this video comes down to the fact that <clears throat> the death and return of Superman is like ultimately one of the things that kind of killed comic books. John, comic books, are, yeah, yeah, but but you'll see what he's saying is like one of the worst things to ever happen to comic books because with the return, like when they, to kill Superman at that time, that was a major, major thing. I mean, it made, um, it made headline news. Like big newspapers were running stories. Oh my gosh, DC Comics is going to kill Superman. Television news broadcasts were being headlined by the story. The comic books, they're, they're going to kill Superman. And it was a big deal. I own that black sleeved black band with the S like the issue where Superman dies. It was a big deal. It was stakes. It was consequences. It, it shook the world. Superman is dying in the comic books. And then they undid it and they just brought him back. Now, to us today, that sounds like just regular business, right? But at the time, the killing off of a major character and then just bringing him back was not something that was done every day. That wasn't just regular daily business the way it is today. And Max Landis makes an argument in this video about how that kind of ruined comic books for a lot of people. Because when you render death as being inconsequential... All of a sudden, comic books no longer have stakes. <clears throat> comic books no longer have stakes. The Because you don't care. It doesn't matter. It's like, oh no, Colossus is in this epic, you know, fight to the death against Mr. Sinister. Oh no, will he survive? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if he survives this fight or not. It doesn't matter if Mr. Sinister rips off his head and chops him into a million pieces. It doesn't matter anymore because now he's just going to come back. There's no consequences anymore. There's nothing for us to get emotionally invested in. And again, I highly just look up Max Landis Superman um, on YouTube. It's really it's really interesting to see. It's, it's a great little video. It's one of my favorite YouTube videos of all time, actually. Anyway. The repercussion of that is that it's kind of become standard now, standard fare. That's just standard now, and all they did with Superman. Now everybody does. And it's not like it's. It's not like with Superman. It was the first time it ever happened, but it was the most dominant and prominent time. And then it just suddenly made it a regular thing. Suddenly now every comic book character died and comes back. They all die and come back. And my one gripe with the MCU. And you guys know I love the MCU. I do. I love the MCU. But 
my one gripe with it, my biggest gripe with it, has always been their nonchalant, casual use of fake deaths just because they've done it so many times. It makes it so, for example, you know, that big emotional scene at the end of Infinity War, Spider-Man dies. I don't want to go, Mr. Stark. I'm like, okay, that's a cool scene. And Tom Holland does a terrific job in it. But I felt no emotion in it because he's going to be back. He's going to be back. I mean, obviously he was going to be back. He had another Spider-Man movie to do. So, I mean, you know, he's going to, but, you know, he's going to be back. When that big sticking with Infinity War, that big emotional moment in Infinity War, when Thanos sacrifices his own daughter and throws Gamora off the cliff, it was a great scene. I enjoyed the scene, but I didn't feel it. I really enjoyed the scene, but I didn't feel it because she'll be back. And as she's falling down the cliff and that music's playing, no, no, and she's falling, oh, and I'm like, okay, yeah, but she's going to be back. It's, this is irrelevant. It's irrelevant that she's dying because she's just going to be back. And, and so at the end of Endgame, when Tony sacrifices himself, spoiler alert for the five people on the planet who haven't seen Endgame yet, but, you know, as when Tony sacrifices himself and, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow Pepper is saying, you can rest now, you can rest. It's a great scene. It's a, it's a great scene. I, I like the scene very much, but I didn't feel anything because he's, he's going to be back. He's going to be back. This, that is, ha that's the problem with fake deaths. It and, and Max Landis puts it way better in his video than I do, but it's the same in the comic books as it is in the movies now. You've, when you go to that well so many times now, I don't, it doesn't matter to me if the hero dies in the scene because I just know he's going to be back in five minutes, right? And to me, like, that's why, and I know I've gone off on a tangent here, but follow me here for a second. That's why when I watch a show like Sons of Anarchy, or <clears throat> Sopranos or Breaking Bad, when I watch one of those shows, I can get a lot more emotionally invested because I know, holy shit, if Ope in Sons, in Sons of Anarchy, if Ope dies here, he's dead. It's final. He's not coming back. So when, when and especially when it's in one of these shows that don't mind killing off important characters, whether it's Battlestar Galactica or like I said, uh, or, or Game of Thrones or Sons of Anarchy or whatever. When you have shows that aren't afraid to ki kill off significant characters that are more reality based shows, there's a lot more emotional investment because if my character, if my favorite character gets shot right now, he's done. I'm not going to get to see him in the show anymore. He's not coming back. He's done. And so when Jax is in a real life-threatening situation, I feel far more tense than watching Batman in a life-threatening situation. I, I can still feel the excitement of a great scene with Batman and enjoy it and love it, but I don't feel that emotional tension because even if Batman eats a bullet between the eyes right now, he'll be back. They'll, they'll, they'll come up with something in the script and say, oh, this is why he comes back. So it won't matter. But oh my God, when I'm watching Ope in Sons of Anarchy get into a prison fight, if he dies here, I'm never going to get to see him on the show again. It's done. It's finished. It's complete. They're not going to fake death him. 
And that's why you can get a lot more emotionally invested in those things that or and feel that tension than you can. Anyway, I know I've gone off on a rabbit trail on that, but it's 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 really is a big issue to me. I don't mind fake deaths being used once in a while. But oh my god, like the way the MCU, the MCU just used does fake deaths like Kevin Feige changes socks. I mean, it, it it really is something they need to pull back on. Maybe only do a fake death every four or five movies so it actually feels significant. Again, I don't know. Again, sorry, I could rant on this all day. It is one of my big pet peeves with not just the MCU, but like comic book stuff in general. Uh, it's just a, it's a little bit too much. All right. Anyway, uh, where are we at here? Uh, uh, Guillaume, Guillaume Labelle writes. Hey, Gio, just learned last night that the Montreal area will be on a 28-day lockdown following a big increase in COVID cases. I should um, I should be sad that I won't get to go to the movies for a month, but I already saw Tenet three times, and it's more than enough. And that's the only movie you get to see. Yeah, and again, I love the way, seriously, I, I'm so, I love the way my home country is dealing with the pandemic. Like, they, 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 they take it seriously. They have such a smaller rate of the disease there because of the way they've dealt with it. And when they see something getting out of hand, they don't hesitate. Boom, lockdown. Let's get this thing under control. That's why Canada and most of the other countries around the world are doing such a better job of managing uh, the pandemic than the country I'm currently living in is, which is a unfortunate thing. But hey, it sucks. But I'm glad that uh, the city is doing what it needs to do to make sure it keeps this thing under control. All right, next up. Ashley M writes as a big fan of flash and Supergirl with the latter being canceled along with arrow and last year's lackluster crisis. I've lost my excitement for the CWDC shows, although I did really like star girl, but it's not part of the quote unquote Arrowverse. That's true. I remember everything you can always, you can still imagine it is connected because like Walter Mata said, it is the multiverse, right? I mean, they're not really connected, but they're all part of the same multiverse sort of thing. But I, I get you. Like when Arrow, like it's funny because even though by the time Arrow was done, I didn't love Arrow anymore. But when Arrow ended, I lost a lot of my enthusiasm for all the other shows on CW. I don't know why, but it's like the cornerstone of the Arrowverse is now gone. And I just don't think that universe works as well without an Oliver. Oliver was the Batman of that universe. For, for good or for ill, he was the Batman of that universe. And I really liked him in there. And when he was gone and Oliver was no longer part of that world, I, I don't know, that world just didn't work for me as much. I don't know. This is the way I saw it. All right. Uh, Jay Meister writes, nothing grinds my gears, a little uh, Peter Griffin in there, nothing grinds my gears more than to be called ignorant in regards to a certain topic, even though you know that is factually not the case at all. Recently, my accuser uh, confused an homage with a cultural with a cultural appropriation and was not interested in the facts. You know, I we had a big discussion about this the other day. That I, I struggled with the idea of cultural appropriation, right? You know, and, and, I, and I mean, I, I, start, I, don't, I, I don't fully understand or grasp the nature of it, right? So uh, just a quick flashback. When I was going to go to the Black Panther premiere, uh, there was this great uh, garment that I wanted to wear that was very much, that was Wakandan, clearly Wakandan, right? But I had some friends warn me, John, you can't wear that. That's cultural appropriation. I'm like, it is, but I'm just a big fan of this. And I can't wait to see it. I'm excited for it. And I, I can't wait. Nope, you can't wear the cultural appropriation. And so I ultimately didn't wear it, uh, fearing that. 
And then I had a bunch of people write and say, no, there's a difference between homage and cultural appropriation. Like when you're doing so to respect it and express appreciation for it, there's a difference. I, but listen, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to pretend that I fully grasp the difference yet. I don't fully grasp the difference. And it scares the hell out of me. It scares the hell out of me of, be guilty, of being guilty of something that I don't even truly understand. But I do believe there's a difference. For instance, when I see... Like, uh, this is black friend I have who loves dressing up as Captain America, right? Is that cultural appropriation? No, it's a Captain America fan dressing up as Captain America because he's a fan of Captain America. So where that line is, I'm not sure. And I'm sure, I think there are others who probably are, but that is one that, that, that I haven't really fully grasped yet and haven't wrestled with. Uh, Fifty Shades of Geek writes, Explain yourself, Campia. What's wrong with the opening song in Star Trek Enterprise? I, for one, appreciate the change of pace. Fair enough, but I just, it's not, it doesn't, it just doesn't feel like Star Trek. Using a popular pop song as an opening thing for Star Trek, it, 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 just, it doesn't work. I mean, especially since, like, this is a show that's set hundreds of years in the future. And really, you're using an old Rod Stewart song? It's been a long road getting from there to here. I don't even know if I'm getting the lyrics right. but um, And that's exactly how they sang it, by the way. I'm, long. I, I'm, I'm nailing it. It's scary how much I'm nailing it. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, to me, it just didn't work. I, you need, I, to me, you need that orchestral score. And it can be a new original orchestra score, but I don't know, just using a pop song to me, it just uh, didn't, it, it never made me feel like I'm getting ready to watch a Star Trek show. You know, you turn on original Star Trek and you hear that, bum, bum, bum. you're like, oh, you like, you just emotion. oh, I'm getting ready for a Star Trek show. You watch the next generation, right? Bum, 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 bum. It's like, oh yeah, that's right. I'm getting ready for anything. It's been a long road getting from there to here. It just doesn't speak Star Trek to me, you know? It doesn't, it doesn't make me feel like, yeah, I'm getting ready to watch a Star Trek show. I don't know. That's just my kind of thoughts on it. All right. Fifty Shades writes. Uh, and right now, all you guys are like wondering, how is Campia not like a pop star right now? It's true. It's a good question. Uh, Fifty Shades of Geek writes, I absolutely loved Lion King 2019. All seven times I saw it, I did too. I can't wait. I didn't see it seven times. Uh, I can't wait to see another one. I hope they incorporate elements from the Lion Guard TV show. I've never even heard of that. The mythology and Scar's backstory is awesome in that show. Again, I don't know. I mean, it's possible they could they can incorporate some of the stuff from all the different auxiliary things that they did after the original Lion King. It's possible. I won't be shocked if they do. I got a feeling though, they're just going to go straight up original. I have a feeling they're just going to go straight up original. I don't know that for a fact, but I, I just got the feeling that they will. But let's, again, my bigger worry right now is what they're going to do with the music. Because the music in the first one was great, except for that one original piece. And this new one is going to be all original pieces. So I'm a little, I got to admit, I'm a little bit nervous. A little bit nervous. Hitty Shades also writes, Mufasa's father, uh, Adi, see, I didn't even know he had a name yet, and mother, Uru, are fascinating characters to explore. I wonder if they'll go back to the, or, to the original lions, uh, Muhatu and Askari. The possibilities are endless. Did I mention I'm excited? Hakuna Matata, Zukazama. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Just, you got to understand. Fifty Shades, here's the thing. There's not many human beings on the face of the earth who know who Mohatu and Askari 
or uh, Adi and Uru are. Not a lot of people watch that. Let's just be honest. So I don't think you're going to, I don't think that Barry Jenkins or the folks over at Disney are going to feel like it's really important to stay in continuity, to follow canon, to follow Lion King canon, right? And do that. So just, I'm just saying, just don't be surprised or disappointed if they decide to, you know, Mufasa's dad's name is Eddie. <laughs> King Eddie is going to be uh, that. And then when the movie when the movie starts, you know, instead of when the movie starts, it'll be, it's been a long road getting from there to here. That's how they'll start the new Lion King. Uh, all right. Uh, Brian, um, Captain Blue Pants writes, um, a lot of people in the chat yesterday were saying that they'd also love to see more uh, Maria Hill. Oh, I love that character. I love that character. Because I love Colby Smulders. Like, good Canadian girl. Good Canadian girl. They'd like to see more Maria Hill in the new Fury show on Disney+. And I agree. Loved her moments in Winter Soldier and Far From Home. She's like Fury's ride or die. And I love their partnership. Yeah, you know, listen, that's another good one. Yep, I was I focused strictly on Clark Gregg. But you know what? Colby Smulders is Maria Hill. I'm all on board. True story. True story. Let me see if I can find an image of this. I'm not sure that I can. Um, I will take a quick peek here. Uh, I don't think I'm going to be able to find it. But a, a number of years ago, some of you may know this, some of you may not. Uh, truly one of the most fun things that I ever did... Um, let me see if I can just zip through this and find it. One of the, the truly most fun things I ever did uh, in my career was, let me see if I can find it here, was when I got invited down to be the moderator for um, the the press conference. Here it is. Well, there's there's one one picture of it. This this is the this is the event to be the moderator of the press conference of uh, Avengers Ultron. Uh, which which was great. Um, where the hell is it? Anyway. Uh, by the way, my wife's all time all time number one favorite wrestler, Gold Dust. I don't know why it's Gold Dust, but it's Gold Dust. Anyway, uh, John, stand topic. Yes. So, um, I was doing this the press. I was the moderator for the for the press uh, junket for Age of Ultron. And so I'm standing there and I got this table of the whole cast is there. Robert Downey Jr., uh, Chris Hemsworth, Chris Evans. Uh, they're all there. You know, Scarlett Johansson. Everybody's there. And I remember <clears throat> Colby Smulders was there too. And she was at the table and she was pregnant at the time. I think if, I, if memory serves correct, she was very pregnant at the time. So, and I knew that when it came time for me to go over to the audience to take questions, I knew nobody was going to ask Colby Smulders a question. They were obviously, I mean, you had Robert Downey Jr. singing, you had Scarlett Johansson up there, you had Chris Hemsworth, Thor. You, you, they were going to ask them. So I decided. <clears throat> That the first question I was going to ask, I, I started off the press conference by asking Colby Smulders a question. I said, first question, let's, let's go to Colby Smulders. And, and I think that surprised a lot of people that I, I decided to make her the first question. 
maybe there's a little Canadian favoritism in that, but whatever. Um, and then a little bit later, I'll never forget this. This was so funny. A little bit later in the press conference, I can't remember what we were talking about at the time, but Robert Downey Jr. puts his hand up looking at me. He puts his hand up and I go, uh, yeah, Robert. And he goes, I just want to say that the next time I'm not asked the first question, I'm walking the fuck out of this press conference. It was it was hilarious. He wasn't being an he was seriously being hilarious. It was being really funny. And everybody just bawled and laughed. Anyway, that's my Colby Smulder story. But I think you're right, Captain Blue Pants. <clears throat> I would uh, I would be down for her appearing in that. Absolutely. Uh, OK, next up. Uh, we've got uh, Mischievous Gremlin writes. I don't know if you've seen it yet, but Netflix released the first look of Resident Evil Infinite Darkness. It didn't show much, but it's something I'm very much looking forward to. It's great to see them doing this and a live action series as well. I have not seen it. Listen, I'm not going to lie to you. I will check it out when it comes out. I'm not a, a Resident Evil fan. I, I haven't liked any of the movies. Now, I had some friends of mine that very much like the movies. Uh, we were talking about John Schnepp earlier. John Schnepp really did love the the uh, Resident Evil stuff. I've never liked them. I've never thought they were any good, personally. But that's just me. It's all subjective. doesn't matter. Uh, but I will give this a shot. when I. But no, I have not seen that yet. Uh, the first, So I'll go and look that up. I have not seen that yet, but I will go and look it up. Thank you, Mischievous Gremlin, for putting that on my radar. I appreciate that. Isaac the Film Geek writes, Hey, John, during the pandemic, I watched one of your videos that inspired me to create a platform on YouTube to talk about movies. I was just wondering, do you have any tips for creators looking to create a film talk channel on YouTube? Um, this comes up a lot. The best thing I can recommend is go to YouTube. Uh, let me see if I, if I can bring it up here. Um, not sure that I, yeah, I'm sure that I can. Give me a second here. The best thing to do is to go to YouTube and go to getting started John Campia. So if you if you type in on YouTube, just getting started, John Campia or John Campia getting started, you will see uh, this thing at the, at the top, which is uh, getting started an online film talk. It is a two hour video uh, that I did years ago. This is back. This is six years ago. This is 2014. But I literally did a two hour video of me just talking about and giving tips and giving a little bit of my backstory. This is how I developed it. This is what I do. If you're going to do a podcast, blog, or YouTube channel, here's some tips. So the best thing to do is to, again, just search John Campia getting started. You should find that video. It should be the very top result. I'm, I'm, it should be. If not, it'll be close. And uh, watch that. That's the best advice I can give. Anyway, good on you. I always encourage film fans to get involved. Do a blog. Do a podcast. Do a YouTube channel. Get involved and add your voice to the community. All right. Carrot writes, have you found since doing your documentary, insert plug here, that you now look at trailers with a different perspective? Thanks for all you do. No. No. I, I, I think, you know, doing what I do for a living as long as I've done it, I'm I'm pretty, I've got a really good idea about how I look at trailers. This was a great opportunity for me to kind of look at different things and talk to other people with different perspectives on trailers, but also, you know, my, here's the thing. Uh, bring up the poster again. Movie trailers, a love story, isn't really about movie trailers period when my documentary is really about is about the relationship between movie trailers 
and film fans. That's really what it's about. I mean, yeah, there, we, we definitely go a little bit into the history of movie trailers and, and things like that about it. We absolutely do. But really, the whole premise of the documentary is looking at this really amazing relationship that exists between movie trailers and the fans. And how the evolution of movie trailers has corresponded to an evolving and an evolution of that relationship. And like any relationship, there's highs to the relationship and there's lows to the relationship between movie trailers and fans. And really, that's really more the focus of it, more, more than that. I think if anything, for me personally, uh, doing this documentary, much like I made a documentary over 10 years ago, actually it's more like 14 years ago now uh, I did my first little documentary uh, attempt was this little documentary I did called Prince of Peace God of War but like that for me making this documentary has a thousand times increased my appreciation I've always appreciated and respected the work that documentary filmmakers do doing it myself has like increased my appreciation for the work like truly good documentary filmmakers do. It's it, it just, it's really changed that a lot. So that's, that's a pretty big one. Thank you for asking though. I appreciate that. All right. Next up, uh, long writes. Hey, John, love your vids. I'm from Australia. Thanks so much, man. Uh, I was in audio engineering industry. It was something that I loved, but I wanted to do something more meaningful recently. Decided uh, to the courage to change careers to study teaching. Thank you for being awesome. Dude, I, I think that's, first of all, I think audio engineering is a terrific path. I think that's amazing. I, I, actually, Anne's got a friend of hers that she does a podcast with who's an audio engineer. And I like, I just always in amazement of people who know how to do audio, like just know how to master audio. I think that's great. But again, I love teachers. I, I think teaching is, a, we've talked a lot about on the show recently. I think teaching is like one of the, the most uh, admirable professions. And uh, if you got a, if you feel like you got a calling to go into that, I think that's great. And all the best of luck to you, man, doing that. I think that's great. All right. Final question of the day, guys, comes to us from Preston, the Kryptonian who writes, Hey, John, just wondering what movie you saw the most in theaters, counting only new theatrical releases. Mine was Revenge of the Sith, which I saw no less than four times in theaters. The whole transition from Anakin to Vader just blew my mind. Yeah, I hated that movie. Um, but, um, it's the one I saw most in theaters is one of the prequels. It's Star Wars, The Phantom Menace. I think my final count, if I'm remembering right, I think it came around 19 times. Now, you also got to remember at the time when The Phantom Menace came out, I was working um, in a CGI company. I was working with the CGI company. And so... What we used to do, because we worked in, in, you know, we had our office and whatever. And what we would often do is we would say, hey, guys, should we uh, have staff meeting? And staff meeting became code for let's run to the mall, to the movie theater at the mall in the middle of the day and go watch The Phantom Menace. Because The Phantom Menace to this day. I don't think there, there are two films to me that really stand as hallmarks of truly p 
pivotal leap forward movies in the realms of visual effects. One is Jurassic Park and the other is Star Wars The Phantom Menace. It is still today to me, the fact that I don't like the prequels, it is a tr- one of the biggest travesties in the history of the Oscars was that the Academy gave best visual effects to Matrix at the time. And don't get me wrong, the visual effects in Matrix were outstanding. They really were. But The Phantom Menace did about 20 different things that had never been done before. Like, it wasn't just that they found this one really cool visual, you know, visual CGI technique that never been. There was like 20 different things that had never been done before in that movie. And so working in a visual effects company, that was a huge. So we would go like at least once a week, sometimes twice to go watch the Phantom Menace because we loved it. Now, I got to admit, every time that I, I loved the Phantom Menace the first time I saw it. The first time I saw it, I loved it. Second time I saw it, well, I re- okay, it wasn't as good as uh, I really liked it. And by the time I got to my like my 12th viewing of it, I'm like, this movie is awful. But the visual effects are incredible. Uh, but at any rate, um, but yeah, I, I think to this day, and I can't imagine another movie ever breaking this record for me, but The Phantom Menace stands as the movie I saw most in theaters. That's the one I saw most. I, I can't ever see another one breaking that record, but that's what it is for me. Anyway, guys, that will do it. Oh, my throat's starting to go on me too. That'll do it for today's installment of the John Cabe Show. Thank you guys so much for being here and thank you for taking part of your day to make the show a part of your day. So I really appreciate that, guys. Special thank you to all of you guys who sent in the live questions, not just because you gave us great fun things to talk about, but you also supported this channel while you did it. Once again, guys, don't forget, if you haven't done so already, why don't you take a second and click on that subscribe button, become a subscriber to the YouTube channel, stay up to date on all the things that we got going on around here. Guys, make sure you do the four main things. Stay smart, stay safe, take care of yourselves, and for the love of heaven, guys, please take care of the people around you. That'll do it for me for now guys thanks a lot for being here my name's john campia and until tomorrow my friends bye bye